0: Amen. thank you so much, Nicole, appreciate that. I know, uh, good morning everybody. I know that last week I was talking about being in denial about the fact that it was the first Sunday of Advent but there's no denying it now. There's trees and poinsettias everywhere but I do have to say that after seeing Nicole's picture of Saks Fifth Avenue, Joe, I'm not sure we have enough LED lights so we may we may have to work on that a little bit more. Um, but, uh, but no, it's really fun. It's great to see all of you. Great to be sharing uh, in the festive nature of this season as we continue on with Advent. Today, we're continuing our teaching series for the Advent season entitled The Herald, where we are looking together at John the Baptist, uh, the one who came to prepare the way, and how his birth and his message and his ministry of baptism heralded the coming of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus. And last week, we began our series by looking together at some pretty remarkable words that Jesus had to say about John. In Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, not only do those words from Jesus set John apart in a truly incredible way, But they also highlight just how extraordinary the kingdom of God that Jesus was coming to proclaim and embody actually is. Because as Jesus says there, for as great as John is, right? And there was no one born of woman greater. For as great as John is, even the least in God's kingdom uh, is greater than that. So we started our series by taking a look back, really from from close to the end of John's story. And this morning, we're gonna continue our series by going all the way back to the beginning, uh, to the story of John's birth, to the heralding of the herald himself. Now, last time we noted that all four gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all begin with John the Baptist. But Luke, in particular, uh, highlights John more than the others. Now, when it comes to narrative storytelling, and especially narrative storytelling in the scriptures, there's always a special significance to what comes first. There's always a special significance to what comes first. The way that a story starts reveals a lot about what's important, both to the storyteller and to the story that's being told. The way a story starts reveals a lot about what's important, both to the storyteller and to the story that's being told. And for Luke, what comes first is the Annunciation of John the Baptist. If you have a Bible accessible and you'd like to join me in the scriptures this morning, you can turn or tap your way to Luke chapter one, which is our text for this morning. Uh, In addition uh, to that, as always, the words will be projected on the screen behind me as well in the auditorium here and in the courtyard, and you're welcome to follow along there. But let's look together now at Luke chapter one, beginning at verse five. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. And so we see there that Luke's narrative begins by introducing us to a priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, both of whom were descendants from the line of Aaron. And the biographical information that Luke provides for us in those verses about Elizabeth and Zechariah's character and their childlessness and their age, is of course very intentional because it evokes another very foundational story from the scriptures, which is the story of Abraham and Sarah from Genesis chapter 18. And so within just the first few verses of his gospel, Luke is already signposting for us that this story is going to be big. Luke is, is very much preparing us here for God's intervention once again in Israel's story. And as the narrative continues, uh, we are told that one time, uh, while Zechariah's division of priests was on duty, he was chosen by lot to burn the holy incense inside the temple, which was a ritual that was performed every morning and evening, uh, and that symbolized the prayers of the people going up before God. And while Zechariah was in the temple lighting the incense, Luke says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And Zechariah was startled, and he was gripped with fear. Luke chapter 1, verse 13 says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to call him John. Now, it's hard to even imagine how disorienting all of this must have been for Zechariah. Right? Here he was in the middle of carrying out his priestly duty right, when all of a sudden an angel appears and says those very familiar and all-important words, do not be afraid, right? which throughout the scriptures are the words that are spoken when humans encounter the divine. And the angel calls Zechariah by name, and informs him that his wife Elizabeth will give birth to a son who is to be named John. Luke chapter 1, verse 14 says, "'He will be a joy and delight to you, "'and many will rejoice because of his birth, "'for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. "'He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, "'and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit "'even before he is born.'" And so we see in those first words from, from the angel, The heralding of John's greatness. The angel heralds John's greatness in God's sight. John will not just be a joy and a delight for Zechariah and Elizabeth. He will be a joy and a delight for Israel as a whole. He will be set apart, much as a priest, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth which is something that we will see actually in a very tangible way later on in the story. And then, in addition to the heralding of John's greatness, we also have the heralding of John's mission, that the angel heralds John's mission. Look at Luke 1, verse 16. It says this, He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so we see there that John's mission will be to bring the people of Israel back to God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah and the goal of his ministry will be to make ready a people who are prepared for the Lord. John will prepare the way for the Messiah. And so this is huge news, right? Not simply for Elizabeth and Zechariah, but for all of Israel. Now, given both the difficulties that he and Elizabeth had had over the course of their lives trying to conceive, and the fact that God had been silent for hundreds of years, It's not surprising that Zechariah was skeptical about all of this in the moment. And so he asks the angel for a sign. Luke chapter one, verse 18 says, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Okay, so we talked earlier about that narrative move that Luke made to evoke the story of Abraham and Sarah as a way of heightening the significance of this story. Right now, with the angel identifying himself as Gabriel, Luke really doubles down on that. Because Gabriel is the same angel who appears in the book of Daniel to reveal a glimmer of hope for Israel at the far, far end of the tunnel of exile. And Gabriel's appearance now, again, in this story, evokes all of that. that it creates a sense of, of anticipation. It creates, a sense of, it creates a sense of anticipation. A sense of anticipation that this story is going to be about that long-awaited light of hope that God had promised actually coming into view. Well, as Gabriel continues in verse 20, he does give Zechariah a sign. Uh, and I think it's safe to say uh, that it probably was not the sign that Zechariah had in mind. <laughs> Gabriel says in Luke chapter 1, verse 20, And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Right? And so Zechariah has this incredible experience. Right? He gets this amazing news, but he can't tell anyone Because he can't speak. And I love the way that Luke describes this in verse 22. Luke 1 22 says that when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he had kept making signs to them, but he was unable, he remained unable to speak. And so Zechariah comes out of the temple after all that's happened and immediately finds himself in the most impossible round of charades ever. I mean, how would you even begin to explain the appearance of the angel Gabriel, let alone the message that he had given, by only using your hands and arms? I mean, this must have been something to see. Well, even though Zechariah was rendered mute, Luke says that he nevertheless finished his service in the temple before returning home. And Luke chapter 1 verse 24 says that after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months, remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So we see there that Elizabeth's response is quite different from Zacharias. That there's no lack of certainty for Elizabeth relative to what has happened. She knows that the Lord has done this for her. And we also hear in her response there, her relief, her relief from the shame of being unable to bear children, uh, and, and all that that carried in, in ancient Israel. Right? Elizabeth is now very much experiencing God's favor instead of the people's disfavor. She's experiencing God's grace instead of social disgrace, right? which is just such a lovely picture of redemption. Okay, so this story of the annunciation of John the Baptist is immediately followed by Gabriel's visit with Mary in Nazareth, where she is told that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and that she too will have a son who will be called the Son of God. And she's also told that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant as well and in her sixth month. And then what happens next is that these two separate annunciation stories, right, which are told separately yet are so inextricably linked, what happens next is that these two stories converge. Luke says that after Gabriel's visit, Mary got ready and she hurried off to visit Elizabeth, which was a journey that even at its shortest would have been more than 100 kilometers, right, and must have just been unconscionably arduous in the early stages of pregnancy. But on top of that, and even more significantly, we can only imagine what an exhausting time this must have been for Mary, right, in in every possible way. What an exhausting time it must have been physically, what an exhausting time it must have been emotionally, and what an exhausting time it must have been spiritually for her. she had experienced Gabriel's visit. There were all the things that she needed to sort out relationally with Joseph. There were all the things that would have needed to be planned, uh, the the unimaginable stress of living with the shame of being pregnant out of wedlock. And all of that makes the reception that she receives when she arrives at Elizabeth's home uh, even more beautiful and profound. Luke chapter one, verse 41 says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's so amazing, right? When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, John leaped from deep inside of his mother's womb in response to the presence of the Messiah. And so in addition to the heralding of John's greatness, and in addition to the heralding of John's mission, we also see the heralding here in a truly amazing way of John as prophet. Right. We see the heralding of John as prophet as he identifies the presence of the Messiah from his mother's womb. And Gabriel had told Zechariah that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. And now, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit too. And she blesses both Mary and Jesus. Luke one forty two, says, In a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her." And and so John the Baptist is not even born yet. And the narrative heralds him as prophet. He's already using his prophetic voice and fulfilling his prophetic role of preparing the way. All right, so we talked earlier about the significance of what comes first in a narrative. Another way that narratives communicate emphasis is through how much space is given to a particular thing. Narratives communicate emphasis by how much space is given to a particular thing. And it's interesting, and you know, when it comes to the story of John the Baptist's verse, birth, two verses are devoted to the event itself, while seven verses are devoted to the story of his naming, which is the narrative's way very much of signaling to us just how important this story of John's naming is. Luke chapter 1, verse 59 says, On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. And so, you know, we see there that, that at his circumcision, Elizabeth and Zechariah were planning on naming John, uh, naming their child after his father. But then all of a sudden, Elizabeth ejects and says that she's, he's supposed to be called John. And I love the way that the people in verse 61 just go ahead and tell the mother of the child what a bad idea that is, right? Because because John is not a family name. You know, some some aspects of human nature just never change, right? Sometimes uh, we just can't keep ourselves from sharing our opinion about something, whether or not it's been requested, right? Uh, But of course, no one here has ever done that, right? Absolutely not. So there's this crazy public discussion going on about the naming of Elizabeth and Zechariah's child. This might make you thankful that you didn't live in the ancient world. There's a public discussion about the naming of the child. And then verse 62 says, then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. And so at the very moment that Zechariah confirms that the child is to be named John, he is also able to speak. And Zechariah praises God, and all the neighbors who thought the the name was such a bad idea were filled with awe. And Luke chapter 1, verse 66 says, Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And so there's a definite sense of curiosity as the news of this incredible story spreads. But there's something special here, something auspicious about John's coming. And it caused people to ask, what then is this child going to be? What then is this child going to be? And the answer to that question actually is embedded in John's name. The answer to that question is embedded in John's name which is precisely why the story of his naming is so significant and why Luke gives so much space to it. The name John means Yahweh is gracious. It means Yahweh is gracious. And it very much heralds the nature of his ministry. John's name itself is a pointer to his prophetic role. It's a pointer to his prophetic role as the forerunner and the herald of the one who would usher in the age of grace. It's a pointer to his role as heralding the one who would usher in the age of grace. And the theological definition of grace is unmerited favor, right? Or as my fourth grade Sunday school teacher, Mr. Cooper taught us at a much more street level, in a much more street level way, grace is when somebody gives something to you and they don't expect anything back. And so John came to prepare the way for God's grace. He came to prepare the way for God's unmerited favor. He came to prepare the way for the gift of love that was coming in Jesus. You know, the Christmas season is a season where there's a lot of emphasis that's placed on giving. Right? There's a lot of emphasis placed on giving at Christmas time, and that definitely is a really beautiful and important part of the season. But the meaning of John's name and the foreshadowing that it provides for us about the nature of his ministry also importantly reminds us, I think, that Advent is also a season of receiving. Right? Advent is not solely a season of giving. It's also very much a season of Of receiving and part of the preparation that we are invited into involves preparing to receive and experience God's grace in its various forms a part of the preparation that we are invited into during Advent involves preparing to receive and experience God's grace whether that is receiving and experiencing God's grace in the form of belovedness, or whether it's receiving and experiencing God's grace in the form of acceptance, or whether it's receiving and experiencing God's grace in the form of forgiveness, or receiving and experiencing God's grace in the form of healing or in the form of joy or in the form of peace, or in the form of community, or even simply receiving and experiencing God's grace in the form of God's presence itself. And I don't know about you, uh, but for me, I often find that receiving is a lot more difficult than giving. I often find that receiving is a lot more difficult than giving and it can be even more difficult to receive when there's nothing that we can give in return right when we talk about something like unmerited favor it can be even more difficult to receive part of the difficulty with receiving for me at least is because receiving presses on my pride it presses on my self-reliance presses on my desire to be self-sufficient. It presses on my desire to provide for myself. And of course, that's precisely why it's so necessary for us to prepare, right? Precisely why it's so necessary for us to prepare to receive. So necessary for us to prepare to receive and experience God's grace. Right? because the story of John's coming so powerfully reminds us something that's just so much at the core of the Advent siege, and that is that Yahweh is gracious. Right? Yahweh is gracious. And John's coming, just as it was so many years ago, similarly today, is an invitation for us to prepare to receive that very same thing this advent season to prepare to receive the graciousness of God because Yahweh is indeed gracious. And so, how might you prepare your heart in order to fully experience it? In order to fully experience God's grace and love this Advent season? And how might you prepare your heart? in order to fully experience God's grace and love this Advent season. Hey, would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful this morning for the gift of your scriptures and for these stories that are from so long ago, yet continue to show us who you are, who we are, who you're calling us to be and what it looks like to follow after you. And we thank you, Father, for just the beautiful intentionality of this story of John's annunciation and for all that it shows us about who he is and more importantly, what it shows us about who Jesus was going to be. And God, as we sit in this season of Advent, which always is a season where there are so many things going on, so much busyness, so many distractions, so many things to do, Lord, we're grateful for the reminder of the emphasis of preparation. And in the same way that Israel needed to be prepared for the coming of the age of grace, we need to be prepared for the coming of the grace of Jesus this Christmas. And so Father, we open ourselves this morning to prepare. Thank you for the reminder that Yahweh is gracious. Spirit, I ask that you would be speaking into each one of our hearts about what it looks like for us to prepare to receive what we need to receive. May you open us up. May you help us, Father, to see the amazing grace and love of Jesus in this season. Would you prepare us to receive and experience your grace? Let we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.